Hello and welcome to Objects in This Review, the podcast where men discuss the paths our lives take and what we hope to see on the road ahead. I am your host, Travis Montez. In this episode, I interview Robinson Lynn, who at the age of 25 became executive director of Manhattan-based training and development company, Momentum Education, which provides leadership coaching for thousands of individual and organizational clients around the world. Robinson is someone I consider more than a friend. He is a brother to me. I often tell him that he is the best man I know. At the time of this interview, Robinson and his wife Tamara had just become parents, their first daughter, Sula, having been born just a short time before Robinson and I had this talk. So in this episode, we talk about fatherhood and love, among other things that will help you understand why Robinson is one of my favorite humans. I hope we have him back if there is an Objects in this Review Season 2, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. This is Objects in this Review. Thank you, Travis. I'm super excited to be here. As you were doing that intro, I'm like, I'm very proud to be the executive director of Momentum Education, but like, I'm incredibly proud to be listed as one of like a human being that you have a connection with and is one of your favorite humans. So I love you beyond words, and people are going to figure out why just shortly. I started off the top talking about Momentum Education, and that seems like a great place to jump in. You are one of a handful of people I know who like loves their job. And I don't think anyone loves their job more than you do. And it is a cool job. Tell us what what Momentum Education is, what it means to be the executive director and what you all do. Thank you. I, I, you know, I do love my job. I'm, I'm someone who I've been the executive director of Momentum since 2010. And I feel like I would like to tell people I've been the executive director since 2010. And I've yet to go to work. And so what the organization does is I, w- I would say we're a personal and professional development organization that primarily does workshops to get people clear about what they want in life, whether it's personally or professionally, and then is aimed at giving you tools to accomplish it. So I would say, you know, coming with clarity about the things that are the heartfelt goals that still matter to you, and then supporting by putting an infrastructure of teamwork and specific tools meant at having you accomplish it in your lifetime and as soon as possible. I'm a big fan of the movie When Harry Met Sally, and there's a term, there's a saying in it, uh, when you find the person you want, want to spend the rest of your life with, you want the rest of your life to begin as soon as possible. And so my thought is, when you have a dream, you want to have it and you're clear that it really matters to you, you want to have it begin as soon as possible. Yeah, I've, to full disclosure, I've done Momentum Education. It's an organization that's like dear to my heart. I, I credit the organization with like many, many of the things I've achieved in my life writing. You know, I don't think this podcast would have happened without Momentum Education. But who would you say are your typical clients? I know from my perspective as someone who's done it, what I think, but who, you know, from your position, who are, who are the people that walk through those doors? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing. It's constantly changing, right? Because we're about to celebrate our 19th year in June. And I would say for the first part of our tenure, really until the pandemic began, all of our workshops were in person in New York City. And when the pandemic began, we expanded outside of a physical space in New York City to now be able to do workshops across the world. And I would say in the past two years, I think we've had about 40 different countries be present. And about, you know, and that's thousands of people across the globe, right? So it's not unusual for me to be in DC having a conversation with someone from Ghana and then doing a workshop later on with someone in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, so that speaks to location. I would think mindset wise, what's really unique about momentum is that 
people come into our workshops and I think a common experience is they find themselves with people who remind them of themselves. Hey, mm-hmm. we have a similar goals. We have a similar background, but they also find themselves around people that they never thought they would be interacting with. Right. So you could have a college student sitting right next to uh, someone who's a, been a 50 year CEO. You can have someone who's retired um, sitting next to someone who's 10 years into uh, a nursing practice and mm-hmm. so on and so on. I would say what's shared though, um, although there's differences in location and occupation, is for the most part, the people who come to Momentum are people who still believe in dreams and are open to trying new things and learning and are looking to be in connection and community with others. Why is that? Do you think that work is important? And what do you think the draw of it is? Because I remember, when, you know, I did it, I don't even remember, 2000, I want to say six. And even at the time, sitting in a room with like 80 to 100 other people, that seemed like a huge crowd to me. And just like you were saying, some people that like I could have gone to school with and then some people who reminded me of my niece, some people who made me think of my mom, some people who made me think of people who I would never have been at a table with. You know, like I was a public defender at the time. There were lots of police officers and, you know, some of my workshops. What do you think draws so many different people with so many different beliefs to this kind of work? You know, I so that's a. I don't think people are coming for connection. Mm-hmm. I think they're coming for a goal they have in mind, and then they realize shortly into it that connection and community is the best way to accomplish it. Right. And so it's almost like you know the saying like dance like no one's in the room or no one's watching. That's great. You know what's better than that? Dancing in the room with people who want to dance in a similar way and are actually seeing you and you get to see right. them. You know, I it's so funny that you say that because when I, you know, I didn't come to Momentum for Connection and then learned how much that was like the missing piece to so many of the things that I wanted to do, giving and receive support, what rest looked like, what even solid work-life balance looked like. Connection was like so key to all of that. You mentioned the pandemic. Before the pandemic, your work was largely, like you said, most of your offerings were workshops, very interactive. Then we get a pandemic where like everyone is home for like, we think a couple of weeks and that turns into forever in New York City and beyond. What what does that do to your programming and how do you, how did you weather that storm? That so many, I would like that so many entrepreneurs, small business owners, like faced. You were like one of those people, one of the Americans dealing with that. How did that impact your work? Yeah, we were one of uh, Travis, as you said that I started to smile because on our door when we closed down on March 11th of 2020, we had a sign saying we're closing down for the next two weeks. <laughs> and it was, you know, close to two years later before we were fully doing some of the workshops we were sophomores doing before and sophomores and pandemic. Correct, and so. I think a few things. We, I was not set up at all, and we as an organization were not set up to be in existence without with without being having in person programming. One hundred percent of our offerings up until then was in, was in person. I didn't think it was possible on March 9th to do the work that we did well without having the face to face physical interaction. Um, but I think. And I was a small business owner who was concerned about whether or not the organization was going to be able to make it. And I think that's transparent mm-hmm. um, because, you know, I was someone who was like, I wonder how my barber's doing, you know, two weeks into the pandemic. And we were one of those organizations where, you know, 90% of what we were offering came to a close in one moment. Right. Um, I think what it gave us an opportunity to do was to practice what 
we have others do in our workshops. And what mm-hmm. do I mean by that? We, we tell people like, hey, there's always try something new. Are you willing to learn? Are you open to trying something else? Are you open to being in community and practicing? Right. One of the things that I think the community aspect is so many people feel pressure to do something perfect that in a way stops them from moving and even doing it to begin. And we had an opportunity to say, okay, well, what can we shift and what can we try and what is the benefits of this new realm? So if we're going to embrace it, we can embrace it reluctantly and do it, you know, as a have to, or we can embrace it like, what does this now allow? Well, hmm, I wonder what it's like for someone in Brooklyn to be doing a workshop right now with someone in Kenya and mm-hmm. be able to share, here's where we're similar, but here's where we're unique. And so it allowed us to have an opportunity to embrace all the things that we ask people to do. And, 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 you know, the people who come to our workshop, like you, you came into our workshop successful, right? People are coming in already successful. It's, It's not necessarily about always accomplishing more. Sometimes it's about doing it differently. And it gave us some say, well, here's at the heart of the matter, what we do. Um, and what is the best way to make sure that continues? And, and what are the ways in which we can embrace this new world we're living in? And the last thing I'll say about, I know I went on, but it also gave me an opportunity to say like, at the time when our work is most needed is when it was the hardest to provide it, which to me doesn't change the fact that it's still most needed. Right. That was actually, as you were talking, that was going to be my next question is that I was sort of thinking, you know, it's so much of your work is about people learning to find inspiration, discipline, connection, honesty, authenticity, the capacity to withstand feedback. Like so much of that is a difficult thing to coach around when things are going great. Like those are hard conversations to have when things are like working for folks. And I want to sort of talk a little bit about like standing in that space during a pandemic where like people are home. Like you're talking about possibility. You're talking about faith and commitment where like people are like, I'm scared to let people breathe on me. Right. And so like that is the time to take that stand. But like where I guess I have, you know, one of the threads of these conversations is like, what did you have to like let go of or learn or be willing to be wrong about to even step, be willing to step into that space in that time? And like, what did you learn in that? Yeah. You know, I'm a results driven person. Mm -hmm. I like having goals. I like accomplishing goals. I like supporting people and accomplish their goals. And what I found very quickly in is that so many people were dealing with such real stress and loss and grief that to rush people to say like, here's what I'm going to accomplish or here's what I've learned. And we're in the process of still learning what it gave me an opportunity. I would say is my level of compassion and empathy. Mm -hmm. And it became to me less important with what people were going to do with the work we offer and how they were going to feel in the time we have together. And I think that was what I, and that's something I applied professionally, but also in my life, you know, it can be quick for me to say, someone shares something, you and I talk about this, like people often take sharing about what's going on in your life as an invitation or request for you to provide support or advice, as opposed to, it's just an opportunity to connect and share and have someone feel heard. And so for me, it became less important with like, okay, how are you going to get that promotion? Or how are you going to do this? Or what are you going to do that? And it became more important, like, do you feel heard in this moment? Mm -hmm. And if not, how can I show up differently so that you feel heard? I feel like that's a great 
sentiment to like segue into like how you got to be where you are and how this organization started, particularly like with your mom. Cause as you're talking about like coaching people and hearing them through this difficult moment, it reminds me of your mom's work, right? And bringing this sort of same work to people who are also experiencing immense suffering and who needed to be heard. Can you sort of talk about your mom who is probably one of the top three influential pe- impacts of my entire adult life? I get choked up as you say that. Yeah, my mom loved you. And mm. like, and that's like, you know, years later, I get to share that. I know I've shared it with you before, but it's nice hearing you talk about her. I'm reminded about her talking about you. And um, so my name is Robinson. My mother's name was Robin. I was literally named Robin's son. And my mother was the founder of Momentum Education um, and also had decades of experience internationally and domestically with doing transformational work. And in particular, in um, you know, she had done work in Spain, other countries as well. But in particular, after the fall of the apartheid in South Africa, my mother, who was a single mother of three, decided to move her entire family, and myself included at the time, to Cape Town, South Africa, to be a part of the healing of that country. And so she mm-hmm. wanted to take transformational work and give it to an area that, like you said, so much healing, go where you're most wanted and needed, right? And she did work with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where you know, literally people who were on both sides of the Civil War were going through a workshop together, sharing about each other, creating empathy with each other, and then looking about how they can carve something, acknowledging. Led by like a Black American woman, <laughs> right? Like, Absolutely. And so, and, and acknowledging what had occurred before getting to what was going to now be possible. And right. I don't see how they, they don't, co- they can't coexist without the acknowledgement of both. And, um, and so my mother did that for years and then moved back to New York City where she started Momentum Education in 2003. And um, in 2009, October of 2009, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And I, at the age of 22, my mother was diagnosed on October 15th and passed away three months later on January 15th. And at the age of 22, she chose me to be the executive director of the organization. And I've been, um, I've been in that role sense. And you, were you right out of college at the time or were you graduating at the time? I had graduated in May and I was going to go do starting in December, a year of traveling. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've saved up enough money from like my waiter job to not live well, but I had a ticket and, um, and was going to do some traveling. And, um, yeah, so I was, had very little professional experience or, and that's being generous. But I think my mom had a clear understanding of my heart mm-hmm. and a trust in that I was going to have the deference and respect for her work that I think it deserves. Yeah, I think you got the vision more. And I still feel that way. I still feel like there's a way in which you hold the vision of holding people both as possibilities and accountabilities. Like you have that distinction and that balance more. And I've known a lot of coaches at this point. I feel like you get that in a way that like so few coaches get that balance. And like she had it, right? Um, The ability to like have compassion, but accountability to see your possibility, but also like hold you accountable. Like that balance is so few people get it particularly get it in a way where they have credibility to deliver it to like a complete stranger and like can stand in that space. And so, yeah, was life coaching or like going into the business, was that like even on the radar for you at the time that you graduated? Well, I, I first wanted to be a rapper. Uh, (laughs) 
I remember your your battle rap days. Exactly. Um, I would say I did the the trainings that Momentum offers. I did as a participant um, when I was around twenty. So I became the director at twenty two. But when I was around twenty, and when I in going through our our workshops as a participant at that time, I had a job that I was very lucky to have. But it was one of those jobs where I would start. It was in public relations and. I would start checking my watch throughout going like, oh, I've been working really hard. What time in the day is it? And then I'd look and it'd be like, oh, it's 10, 13. It's, you've been working for 35 minutes. Exactly. And so the first time I did a specific offering at Momentum called the Advanced Course, I realized that I'd gone through the entire day without checking my watch once. And since then, I've only worn watches at fashion statements. Like They have no actual time because more often than not, I'm not checking to like see the time because I'm enjoying what I'm doing in such a way that time flies. Um, and so I would say at that time, I fell in love with the work. And really, it was going to be a dream to go travel and then one day learn and work with my mother. Um, what I wasn't I expecting I was the time. two sort of questions for you. Maybe three. I'm interested sort of in this journey of going from like recent college grad to like not only like life coach and like delivering these programmings, but like business owner, right? You know, if I, you know, not that it's about me, but like if I think of myself at 22, that responsibility would have, I would have flatlined. Like I have like the idea of like being responsible for myself and other people at 22 would have been daunting. What was a similar theme? Like, what did you learn about yourself? What did you have to like be willing to be wrong to like even agree to do the thing? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a good point because, you know, I was doing and still do double. Part of my role is as executive director, business owner, you know, strategy plans, the responsible things that need to happen in order for an organization to continue, right? Budgets, et cetera, that aren't the fun parts for me, but have to be done. And then part of it was also facilitator in person talking and looking to coach people who at that time and, you know, were for the most part, significantly older than me and far more accomplished. And so I think some things that I took from it was one, and this part I'll give credit, a lot of credit to my mother was that I loved my mother so much and I found her to be a completely unexpected person. And the things that I thought were going to upset her were the things that she would delight and take pride in. And the things that I, when I thought she was going to give me like a pat on the back, that's when she would call me forward and be like, well, actually, here's what I think is possible. And because I was so clear that almost any human on the planet would have a hard time predicting what she was going to do, it became, I removed the pressure to do, to ask myself, what would she want? Because I knew I wasn't going to be able to answer that. And in doing that, then I got to say, okay, well, well, then I get to use my heart as a compass um, and have that be the case as opposed to trying to uh, walk in someone's shoes that I wasn't going to be able to fill and that she wouldn't have interest in me filling. The other thing that I think is like the thing that just jumps out and a different day I might have a different question is I made so many mistakes and yay, right? Because I've learned from those mistakes and there's certain mistakes that yeah, I made multiple times and it took me a while. And there's other ones where I'm like, oh, I don't have to make this one again. Like I remember in my second training, feeling like I was in an interaction with a, with a participant that was unkind, that where I was being unkind. And I think they were trying to push my button and maybe didn't have respect for me because I was 22. But they weren't the one who went home and looked at the mirror. I was. And when I looked in the mirror, I said, I wasn't kind to that person. And I don't like this way that I feel. And I'm not going to do this again. 
And then professionally, it was the same thing. It was like, oh, this is the impact if I drop this ball, if I don't focus on this accounting error or this location thing. And so I think I've been grateful that I've been willing to take chances and I've made a lot of mistakes. And I think if I wasn't willing to make mistakes, I wouldn't have said yes to this opportunity. And then I would have robbed myself of like the joy of the last, uh, you know, 12 to 13 years. And all that learning, right? Because people, you know, I'm one of those people who like mistake. It's very hard for me to not jump from mistake to failure and failure is like the end. And really that's like so much information and mistakes and failure when you give yourself that permission. What do you like most about your job? I would say two, twofold in the, the person in the, in when I'm actually acting as a facilitator or coach, the two things that I love the most is we incorporate music into our workshops. And I say very transformational, profound and joyful ways. And I think Sometimes, whether it's personal or professional development, it can be sterile or cold. And I think we utilize all different types of music, right? So from it's not unusual to play a hip-hop song next to a singer-songwriter, next to Indiari, next to uh, Cardi B. As diverse as the room. As, as diverse as the room. And so I, in, music was my first, like one of my first real loves. And I love that we incorporate music into our experience and celebrate, like you said, as diverse as the music is, is the room. And I think people feel celebrated and seen by our music inside of facilitation. The other is it's a great honor when people trust you enough to share their dreams. And that's not something I take lightly. So I was doing a workshop. Do you find that people don't do a lot of that in their lives? My experience is for most people, not all, but for most people, the more something matters to them, the less likely they are to share about it with others mm-hmm. and the closer they hold it to the vest. And so I think we encourage people to share in a way that for many people, it's like, oh, I'm saying this dream I've had for the first time in 20 years or the first time ever. Yeah. I'm admitting how much this matters to me for the first time ever. Yeah. And that's such a beautiful, that like that dream, that goal, that heart is, it's like a, I say often that results are not evidence that you matter, but it is evidence of what matters to you. And so when someone's sharing their dream, they're inviting you in to see a part of them that they trust you enough to see. And so from a facilitation part, I love that. Uh, And then from kind of the director or business owner, what I love is getting to work with my team and our team and having people come in and say, oh, well, this is the first time at a workplace I get to share about how I'm doing inside of it. This is the first time where I don't feel guilty, like I don't feel shame about a result that I fell short of, where I can actually share, like, here's how I would do it differently. And so I really... Why do you think that's unique? Why do you think that's a unique work environment? I think because we're in a capitalistic society, right, that... um, I would say that I don't, I think most people, not everyone, but I think a lot of people are treated in a way where they're, um, they're treated as disposable and they're treated as the result they bring is what matters, not the person they are, or the experience they have during it. And I think with momentum and what I try to do and not always successful is I don't want to be in a workshop talking about empathy and love and accountability and possibility, and then close that workshop door and then go be the antithesis of that in my professional life. And so I try to use the workshops as the compass. If we practice what we say in the training room and actually practice it in our lives, how could we not soar the same way people soar when they're going through the workshops as individuals? I have 
one more sort of thought that I want what, about your work that I sort of want to speak to, which you mentioned, I, you sort of got to read, edit indirectly, but it's it's also I'm wondering about the journey to give yourself permission to make it your own, to make momentum your own, to make the work, to make the position your own, right? Because you clearly have so much respect for your mom and so much love and so much reverence for her legacy. But like watching the momentum grow, like no one could have seen it become what it is almost directly related to like your willingness to take the risks that you spoke of in so many moments. And I wonder, um, and maybe you've already said it, but like speaking directly to like the, the willingness or the permission to like give yourself the ability to not walk in her shoes. I like, I love that so much. I want to hear like more about that. It's resonating with me for personal reasons. Yeah, it's twofold, right? Part of it was because I respect her so much. Why would I disrespect her by trying to do a bad imitation? And I didn't have the same lived experience as my mother, right? And so how would I be able to do what would really, it would feel like I was a bad actor doing like a, a bad impersonation of her, and what I loved about her in so many different ways, but one thing about her as a mother is people would say to like, oh, and you're right, the company grew exponentially in my time as the director, right? And sometimes people would say, well, your mom must be so proud of you. Look at your results. And I was like, you know what? My mom was proud of me, not because of what I, my results. And that was a unique experience. So many people are consistently having to prove that they're worthy of love. And I could never prove that I wasn't worthy of love to her. But in, in specific around, like, like there's a key moment that involves you, which is we incorporate music into our trainings a lot. And in my experience, you know, as a 22-year-old who, who loved all types of music, but really grew up with hip-hop, like wanted to be a rapper at one point, wanted to like DJ at one point, I found that there was a time where like so much of the music we were playing didn't speak to me. And I felt it like it didn't speak to other generations as well. And so there was a moment in a workshop that you were in where I wanted to play a song of significance to kind of acknowledge you. And the only, and I, like people are like, oh, what about this song from Bette Midler? Or what about this song from Stevie Nicks or Billy Joel? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I want to play Nas. I want to play one mic by Nas because one, I think it's a, tr I can't think of a more transformational song. And I think it's going to speak to you, Travis. Mm -hmm. And I, and, um, and so, but I'm like, but people are like, well, you can't play Nas. We don't play hip hop. And this is like a serious training. We're like, you can't play this and this. A solemn moment. This is a solemn moment. This is a reflection moment. Right. And I think what, in that moment, it became a celebratory moment to me as opposed to a solemn moment. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I can do this this way and still resonate. And I'm not saying that we only play Nas now, but it was like a light bulb moment of, oh, I'm not picking what I want to hear. I have to do the work to see what's currently possible. And then my role is to pick what I think will serve that person as opposed to having them fit into what we've always done. And I always just feel like if the only reason you're doing something is because that's the way it's always been done, I can't think of a worse way or a worse reason to do it. I want to shift gears a little bit. And frankly, I think this is probably going to be my favorite part of the conversation. Not that I have, I mean, I love every word that comes out of your mouth and can talk to you forever. But so we had scheduled this 
conversation for like weeks ago and had to reschedule for the best reason possible. You have recently become a dad and you are married to one of my favorite people. And I just like want to talk about relationships and dadness, which is new for you and like what you are learning. How, how is, how is baby girl? Yeah. So, um, in a few days, I'll be the father of a three-month-old daughter. Her name is Sula Robin Ivy Lynn, and she was named Sula by my wife, Tamara, and I. And um, yeah, you're right. I remember you were like, I think you were going to have to reschedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Sula's... Because she was like three seconds old. I was like, I don't think now's a great time to try to do a virtual interview. Yeah. And you know what? So I think the first thing that comes to mind as you ask about this experience... Um, is that Sula was born seven weeks early. And, um, and so my wife went to the hospital not expecting to give birth. And then an hour later, I was told to come. And about three, three to four days later, my wife gave birth to Sula. And so what I think was an interesting or what's been profound to me was two things. I'll start with the first one, which is when we got to the hospital, because she was slated to be born early, the doctors who were wonderful and the nurses who were fantastic were doing everything they could to delay birth and delivery as much as possible. Um, from this shot, from this thing to that thing, all of which is meant to have Tamara not give birth at this moment. And there became a point, my wife went into the hospital on Friday morning, there became a point on Monday evening around 9 p.m. where I was clear, oh, this baby's coming. And we're either going to have the experience of we know what's best and let's fight it as long as possible, which may have the experience of her feeling unwelcomed, just energetically coming into the world. Or we can trust in divine timing in this moment and trust that maybe she knows more than we do. um, And let's embrace her being born. And in that moment, it went from this fear of like, what's going to happen if we don't go a few more days or a few more hours to how can we have her feel welcomed and how can we create a space where we're like not accepting, but we're celebrating her being born, um, which was help. And, you know, I say that and the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life was having Sula be in the, in the NICU for almost 20 days. And so I say that not saying that it was an easy process, but what shifted was, wow, here's a soul that wants to be born. How can we celebrate it versus not? And, and because of how challenging the NICU experience was, and again, with the most wonderful doctors and nurses that not everyone gets to experience, the being a father has had me celebrate life and her life in, um, and increase my capacity to love in ways I never thought was possible. A friend of mine, when he first became a dad, described it as his heart being renovated. He's like, there's spaces in my heart to love that I didn't even know were there. Um, And that's sort of like always stayed with me. I'm so thrilled that you're a dad. It's like one of the things that like makes me so like happy about the world right now. Um, Would you say that you're married to your best friend? So yes and no, right? One, because now I feel like Sula is my best friend. That's Um, the homie. Yeah, even though Sula's best friend is probably my wife, right? Um, And there was a long time in which I was resistant to calling Tamara my best friend Mm -hmm. because I wanted to make sure that we didn't lose 
the romance. I didn't want to become such good companions and partners that we stopped romancing each other. And I'm constantly learning. And so now I would 100% consider her my best friend. And we're just best friends who haven't stopped trying to hit on each other, romance each yeah. other, um, give each other those sparks in our stomachs that, uh, yeah. you know, inside of it. <laughs> There's, when I, you know, I love love. Love is like my, that's my shit. Um, and so what I, and there are not many couples that I love as individuals, you know what I mean? Like most couples that I know, there's, I have a preference. I'm like pulling for them, but I'm like, one of you is really, really lucky. You're like one of the few couples that I'm like, you're both absolutely lucky. I like you individually. And I think the hook is like, you get intentional partnership. Like you're like, there's no, like as much as the both of you love each other, you're both like so clear that like work keeps me here. <laughs> that I love this person, but this is a job. And I'm every day I'm checking in, but like work is what makes it happen. Yeah, you know, I think about, there's, I was I officiated a wedding last weekend, and they may whether they listen to this part or not, right? There's a part that people often take in their vows, like to death to us part. Mm-hmm. I don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want Tamara to stay with me because she made a vow on September second of 2017. I want her to stay with me because she wants to stay with me, and I want to stay with her because I can't imagine life without her. Not because I'm honoring my my vow or my mm-hmm. commitment, and I think that has us both never stop trying to love the other person, not because we're worried about the other one leaving, but because we don't want to do anything else. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think so many couples start staying together out of obligation because they're like, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, I'm not, I'm staying with you because you're my best friend and I love you, not because of any other reason. And so that's been special. What do you think you've learned about yourself from being a husband? What have I learned about myself from being a husband? You know, the first thing <laughs> makes me laugh because now I'm, I think the first thing I've really learned is how at times it's challenging to be in relationship with me. And, and in ways where it's, I, I was having a conversation with my father who is 84 and at the age of 82 got remarried. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, which was really beautiful about, there's things that are beautiful about finding love in your 80s, but there's also beautiful things about finding, like getting older with people. And mm-hmm. what he talked about was that when you're older with, getting older with someone, there's an opportunity, not everyone always takes it, but there's an opportunity to soften each other's edges. And I feel like Tamara has softened parts of me uh, that were very like, this is how it's supposed to be done. And this is what mm-hmm. matters. And this is what's right. And this is what's wrong. And she's introduced me to more perspectives. And all, one, some of those perspectives are so good. I'm like, I never want to go back to that other perspective. Mm-hmm. And others, Same. exactly. And then others are I'm like, you know, I don't know if that fits for me, but I respect it so much that I can no longer act as if it's not a possibility. Mm-hmm. And so I think I... 15 years ago, before I was in a relationship, like, I was very like, this is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is how it's supposed to be. And um, as a husband, I've been able to expand my possibilities. And you know this, but like, I'm someone who has said in my life, I'm going to impact a million people this year. Mm-hmm. And then figured out strategies where we get like this much food donated to a million people. Or I've said, you know, we're going to impact the education system. And then worked in a way where we're impacting, you know, hundreds of thousands of young people 
in their schools in a way where they get to the work of mattering that we do personally and professionally with young people in that way. So I share that to say that I'm typically, it's not always around January 1st, but it's typically, this is the time of year where I'm like, what do I want to accomplish in the next year? Mm-hmm. What do I want to accomplish in the next decade? And I start having big, tangible goals that... When did you start that practice, you think? Um, I think that's probably always been in, kind of ingrained in me, mm-hmm. is like this idea of like, well, you know, I'm a dreamer. Like I like mm-hmm. having big dreams, but I'm a dreamer who likes to accomplish. And if you're not have, if it's not specific enough, you may not know whether you've accomplished it. So right. I like to have a goal and go after it. Um, but right now what's so funny is like, you were like, what, what are you dreaming of next? And I'm like, you know, holding Sula tomorrow morning at 5am and chilling with her and playing music in the background while I hold her. And maybe she gets to fall asleep on my chest and, you know, that's what I'm dreaming of. And it's also what I'm living, which is a blessing. But for the first time in my life, I don't have a large, overarching, tangible result I want to create outside of enjoying the moments I have with my wife and daughter. That is a wonderful goal to have. Um, I love that. I love that journey for you. That's our favorite <laughs> um, Shit's Creek reference. Uh, and my last question, thank you for doing this. What's in your rear view, Robinson? That's such a beautiful question. Um, and I, I have like, I took the time to like, look at like in my head, I'm imagining a rear, rear view. And I love that like, you can look in your rear view mirror at different moments on your drive and be like, oh, this is what I'm seeing. Or this is what I'm seeing. Or now there's something new there. And so in this moment, when I see the rear view, I see um, a younger version of myself who um, was like full of joy and um, full of joy and possibility and creativity. And that, um, so that's what I'm seeing, but then I'm feeling like I'm getting closer to that. Like, I feel like I'm getting older and finding myself having more in common with the 10 year old version of me than I do with the 30 year old version of me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm seeing in the rear view, like a smiling younger version of me. And even you and I talked about this, but like for 10 to 15 years, I kept my hair as short as can be. Cause it's what I was really conforming to what I thought professional standards were. Yep. And also because of how young my age was, I felt like I wanted to remove certain things that would have someone even question what my age was. Yep. So I, and now I'm like, you know, this is the longest I've gone without a haircut. Hopefully I'm going the rest of 2022 without a haircut because I remember being a 10 year old who never cut his curls. And I I want to be that 10 year old again with responsibilities and age, but I want to like not cut my curls. Yeah. I feel like, um, I joke about midlife crises all the time because I am 44 years old (laughs) and that is remarkable to me. And I feel like what happens is, because I too like feel like I have more in common with like my teenage self than ever. And I think it's like this return or embrace to like authenticity and intentional joy and like intentional play. Like I schedule nothing. You know what I mean? Like there are t- I have holes in my I keep holes in my schedule to do no thing but like whatever I want to do at that time. And I find myself doing stuff that like coloring, watching shows from that age or watching shows that are similar to stuff that I like then reading books from that time. Also growing my hair longest 
that I have a humongous afro that like would have been I couldn't have imagined going to work as a young 25 year old attorney in family court in 2003 with an afro or or extensions or like any of that and you know some of that is real like I definitely feel like I would have gotten some of that's real but some of that is also like just how I was brought up and made to think about men with longer hair that that's not professional that you're asking for trouble that you're you know because you know as a teenager what movie was it there was some movie out where like a kid had braids and I wanted braids and my dad was like absolutely not you'll look like a criminal and that like stayed with me um but authentically i was like i want to have fun i want to enjoy my hair um and that's yeah same journey where like you know i feel like i've come to a point where i have so much more in common with like the person i was before i tried to be who i was supposed to be i like i like it i like it people are competing with my self-created joy that's like (laughs) i love that uh, that's how I'm choosing who to be around. I'm like, are you offering me a better time than I can offer myself? <laughs> that's great. Because I am middle-aged. I don't know how much more of this I have. I'm very intentional. Let me take this opportunity to say I love you dearly. Thank you for doing this. Um, you are one of the reasons, you know, our conversations, especially during the pandemic, are one of the things that inspired me to, like, do this podcast and talk to men about the choices they make because I feel like they're you know there haven't been a lot of these conversations had publicly there are not a lot of, of permissions given to men to talk about this stuff um, and so I thank you for doing this with me and inspiring me and always being a yes oh, thank, thank you, you Robinson and thank all of you out there for listening to this episode of Objects in This Review I am Travis Montez reminding you that the only reason to take a look back is to see how far you've come see you next time